Hello, everybody. It's that time again. Welcome to another enormously exciting edition of this call-in program. I think I might actually call it a program from now on because it kind of gives it a hint of nostalgia. I don't know about you, but I have uh, my grandparents would always refer to TV shows that they routinely watched as their program or their programs. Like, for example, my uh, grandmother would watch soap opera, like watch a particular soap opera every day during the daytime, and she would call it her program um, as though she had some kind of ownership on it. And I was in the UK uh, recently. I just got back this week, and it was kind of became apparent to me that the term program there is much more widespread for a TV show than it is here. So it's not like an antiquated term as much as, uh, as much there. So I guess there's some kind of linguistic connection uh, that I hadn't previously been cognizant of. Um, but anyway, this is the column program of mine and we always enjoy ourselves here. So I just wanted to first start off with a thought that derives from an appearance I did on Thursday on this news station called uh, News Now, News Nation. I think it's called News Nation. Um, and I was on one of their kind of primetime broadcasts. I'm not sure how many people watch this station, frankly, but I'm always happy to appear. And the host is this guy, Leland Vittert, who is a former uh, Fox News anchor. And invited me on the show to talk about the latest Ukraine developments. And I was sort of surprised because it ended up being a somewhat adversarial uh, interview, which is actually fine. I, I like that and appreciate that in a way because it's always good to mix it up with people who might not share your views. And that leads to elucidation of views in a way that can be uh, interesting. Um, but you know, one thing he brought up was my allegedly reading too much in to these leaks that appeared this week in the New York Times, um, which uh, in, in which uh, quote unquote senior officials were quoted as conveying that the U.S. was much more intimately involved in the war effort in Ukraine than had been previously disclosed. Now, that could have been easily inferred prior to this past week. And we had already known, starting uh, in early March, that the U.S. was engaging in information sharing or intelligence sharing operations with the Ukraine military that could be used for uh, combat purposes. And that was that's another red line that's we've blown past, right? I mean, when that was first announced that this was happening, and the White House kind of casually confirmed it um, earlier in that very day, Adam Smith, who's the chairman of the Armed Services Committee and a Democrat, had said that if the U.S. were to be at an arrangement where they would be feeding intel to the Ukraine military that we then use for combat operations against Russia, that would be too much of a red line. That would be too close to outright warfare being undertaken by the U.S., and therefore it shouldn't be done. Well, that all went by the wayside pretty quickly, and now it's just an accepted thing that the U.S. is engaging in this kind of intelligence-sharing arrangement with the Ukraine military. But obviously this past week, it 
reached a new <laughs> fever pitch, at least in terms of the intensity of the involvement. And we had leaks that U.S. intelligence had been integral in allegedly allowing for Ukraine military forces to kill Russian generals and then to sink its flagship uh, warship uh, last month. And so when Leland Vittard, who's this anchor on the News Nation channel, kind of questioned whether I was too mu- too, reading too much into the motivation behind those leaks, he suggested that you know, it could be for any reason that this information came out. Maybe it was just because the reporters had successfully elicited something out of their sources at drinks, uh, you know, at a bar or something, and it didn't mean that there was any kind of intentionality behind the leaks beyond maybe some of these senior officials being too loose-lipped. Now, I, I think it is actually worth hoeing in on something that the U- New York Times put into the one of those articles, which is that they actually said it was a senior official who relayed this information, right? Um, now, we can't know with precision what that means or who that indicates the source was or source is, uh, but it's, it means it likely was not just some low-level kind of nameless bureaucrat within like the uh, National Security Council or something. Um, so it was probably somebody that you, would, you and I would recognize if their name were to come out, although we can't know for sure. And so my only point then was, well, without reading the minds of the anonymous sources who have now promulgated this information by way of the New York Times, what's the one thing we can assume about the intent? Um, we, so I don't, you don't need to be put the leaker in a psychologist's armchair in order to glean that if they are going to the New York Times and putting this information out there and giving that enough of a, of, a, of a robust kind of series of informational tidbits that it can be corroborated to the satisfaction of the New York Times editors and then published, it indicates that there's a desire for that information to be publicized, right? At the very least, that's the one thing that you can safely assume about this leak, that it reflects the desire of the officials who were the sources to publicize that information. And so, you know, what was pressed upon me was that, you know, how do I know? Because he was reading off a tweet that I did on Thursday where I was pointing to this latest article in the New York Times and saying that there appear to be at least some officials within the Biden administration who want to drop the pretense and just openly declare war on Russia. Um, And the basis for that was, of course, if they're leaking this information, which shows a greater uh, and greater intensity of the U.S. operational involvement was to kind of drop any pretense that this is strictly about aiding Ukrainians or providing uh, defensive capabilities or, you know, protecting the sovereignty of Ukraine itself or whatever, um, and that the, the goal was actually much more far-reaching, which is warfare of some sort against Russia. And you know you don't have to be like a psychic mind reader to <laughs> glean this at all, because you know when Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, uh, went on that trip with Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, to uh, Kiev, go, he emerged at a press conference right after and said that the uh, per- goal of the U.S. policy-wise is to weaken Russia. He, 
obviously made the standard kind of gestures toward preserving the sovereignty of Ukraine, that kind of thing as a goal of, of the U.S. But he added on top of that this newly articulated desire to weaken Russia. Um, and, you know, when Austin made that trip shortly thereafter, you had those, you know, w- literally within hours after he departed, there was this mysterious series of explosions at a military logistics hub in territorial Russia, 90 miles away from the Ukraine border. So uh, we obviously, we don't know for sure that the U.S. was <laughs> sharing uh, that led to that attack. But, you know, given what's about its involvement in other high-profile attacks, it uh, stands to reason that that's actually, uh, at least a strong uh, possibility. Um, so that was my experience <laughs> in trying to kind of convey the significance of these leaks in the New York Times this uh, past week. And you'll notice that when, when most kind of mainline pundits discussed these leaks, in the, who work for different media outlets or are politicos of various kinds, to the extent that they had any criticism of what was being reported in the New York Times, their criticism was aimed at the fact that the information was revealed at all. They didn't like the fact that there were leaks happening. Right? They wanted to have that information about the operational involvement of the U.S. military in these uh, combat actions, they wanted that to remain safely concealed from the public, underlying policy, right? or they largely didn't express any problem with the underlying policy. And this is a pattern you see repeated over and over again. Um, you know, the person named Matt Duss, who is a foreign po- the chief foreign policy advisor for Bernie Sanders, who uh, in March or so, I was working on an article, I tried to get him to, I tried to contact him just to ask him a very simple question uh, about Bernie Sanders' position, which is that, you know, does Bernie Sanders, this is the question that I posed to him, does Bernie Sanders support the sanctions that the Biden has, administration had at that point thus far put on Russia? And it seems like a pretty basic question. We <laughs> lend itself to a pretty straightforward answer, but of course I didn't get any response from anybody associated with the Bernie operation. And um, interestingly, Matt Duss, around the same time, was uh, publicly praising the Biden administration's response policy-wise to the Ukraine war, calling it, quote-unquote, the responsible progressive position. You know, And that, at that point in March, we were already at a, in a situation where the Proxy war was well on its way to escalating. We already had the largest weapons funneling operation in Europe since the 1940s underway. Um, and uh, there were already the first kind of incl- inclinations that this kind of intelligence sharing uh, activity was in effect. Uh, but according to Matt Duss, who you know was since in his own way speaking on behalf of the kind of institutional quote unquote progressive movement, at least as it relates to foreign policy, he was coming out and publicly saying that actually what Biden's doing is the respect the responsible progressive thing. Um, and so 
even now, today, you, uh, this past week, you see people in positions like him continuing to walk this political tightrope where um, Dust will, on the one hand, say that, you know, this guy, Seth Moulton, who's the Democratic congressman from Massachusetts, was reckless and irresponsible for uh, going out on Fox News a few days ago and declaring that the U.S. is fundamentally at war with Russia, not just supporting the Ukrainian goal for freedom, but actually at war with Russia. That's what Seth Moulton said on TV. He actually ran for president in 2020, if you can recall that, because he didn't make much of an impact. Um, but that's what Seth Moulton said. And so you'll, you'll occasionally get a guy like Matt does saying, oh, look, that's going a little bit too far rhetorically. That's reckless and irresponsible to have said. But that complaint will not be accompanied by any underlying criticism of the policy itself. Because the policy itself is geared toward what Seth Bolton said. I mean, if the, if the U.S., as it did just a few weeks ago in another series of leaks, is now making plain that they are not any longer even pretending to uh, draw any distinction between so-called defensive and offensive operations in Ukraine and that their intelligence-sharing activities could be used for purposes including you know, overt offensive attacks against Russia, including within Russian territory, that's warfare against Russia. I mean, uh, one, one thing that you'll find is that people are so kind of invested in playing these word games and mental gymnastics that they can't just apply a commonsensical interpretation to what we're seeing unfold before us, which is obvious warfare against Russia, um, even if it's partly through a proxy. Now, you'll notice that earlier on in this whole ordeal, it was seen as controversial to even to assert that a proxy war was underway. To even use that phrase was deemed controversial. When I was on Tucker Carlson in March and used that phrase, I was subsequently attacked by uh, Media Matters, this so-called you know, progressive watchdog group, uh, for uh, peddling Russian talking points, because I used that very phrase, even though Leon Panetta had said that phrase publicly before me uh, in, to describe the U.S. policy in Ukraine. And, you know, Panetta, I don't think you could describe as just a propagator of Russian talking points. Or if you do, then you're accusing somebody who is the Secretary of Defense and CIA director under Obama as being a Russian stooge. Um, I mean, but over time, you know, the stigma around openly using that phrase has diminished somewhat and now it's kind of accepted that it's yeah it's a proxy war um at least, you know not everybody accepts it at this point but it's more and more accepted to use that terminology and i, I think you're going to see something similar with um whether it can be said that the u.s is fundamentally at war with russia so you know molten saying that in public earlier this week um was kind of a little bit beyond what most politicians would say about the nature of the U.S. war effort, uh, maybe more blunt and more um, uh, striking in its, its phrasing. But all he was doing, again, was reflecting what the, every aspect of U.S. policy is plainly geared toward at the moment. Um, so you know, I guess we'll have to check back in with uh, Matt Duss at some point to see if these – never-ending uh, weapon shipments with higher and higher grade, grade weaponry, so the howitzers or the uh, tanks or the uh, fighter jet parts 
if those being sent into Ukraine, but with the facilitation of the U.S., if that's still the, what he regards as the responsible progressive position. Um, uh, unfortunately, he won't reply to me, uh, but maybe somebody who has a better uh, connection with him can uh, try to suss out his, his views on behalf of uh, the Bernie operation. Um, one one uh, kind of related point that is actually a sort of a preview of the article I'm working on now, which hopefully will be out either today or tomorrow, um, is, is kind of dis, not kind of strictly connected to this whole kind of escalatory spiral that we talk about pretty frequently on this program, but it's kind of a point about the political climate right now and the inconsistencies in how certain things are portrayed uh, as time goes on, right? So if you were a, a sentient adult between the period of 2016 and 2020, roughly speaking, you probably became aware that there was this really kind of frenzied drumbeat of warnings that uh, neo-Nazis or Nazi-allied factions were on the rise in the U.S. So when, you know, the Charlottesville thing happened in 2017, there was this enormous outpouring of rage and fear and consternation that neo-Nazis had somehow become this formidable force within U.S. politics, in part because of either the uh, tacit or direct support of Trump, right? So we all had to be really alert for signs that Nazis were uh, ascending in the American political power structure and had to constantly be you know, monitoring the landscape for uh, any uh, murmurings that you know, Nazis were organizing or gaining political power. And you had, you know, endless articles and tweets published by, in, the, in the media uh, purportedly documenting how uh, Nazis were becoming more and more mainstream and were really uh, fearsome in their political capacities. And we all had to, uh, you know, be extremely worried about this new trend. Um, so... A couple of weeks ago, late April, uh, I uh, happened across a piece of video footage that had been taken in New York City. And in that footage, it was uh, it depicted a rally where a number of uh, the people gathered were chanting the word Azov, Azov, in a kind of affirmative, celebratory way. And I thought that was a bit curious. And here we have, in on the streets of New York City, a rally happening to extol the virtues of a group, which just in 2018, Congress had banned the provision of weaponry to on the ground that they were excessively neo-Nazi. And now, I don't like to be overly broad in kind of castigating whatever the political faction is for supposedly being in line with neo-Nazi sentiment, because at least in the U.S., that charge is really overused and often can be expanded to mean just like anybody who's a conservative Republican is somehow uh, tacitly abetting Nazism. Yeah, but you know, as has been pretty well chronicled at this point, you know, the Azov Battalion was banned by Congress in 2018 for its adherence to neo-Nazi ideology. And uh, before this invasion, it wasn't even that controversial to point out that their affinity for this ideology it appeared in many publications, many think tanks uh, chronicled this. And, but 
Uh, and of course, you know, look at their basic kind of symbolism that they use on their gear and their public communications and stuff, and it's all straight up kind of neo-Nazi, uh, or, or it, it's it recalls the actual historical Nazis. So this isn't just sort of a this isn't a um, a stretch to apply this label to this group. Um, and here we have it in the streets of New York City, <laughs> marchers going around shouting Azov, Azov in, in affirmation. And so it struck me that, you know, if those groups who throughout the Trump presidency were always so determined to uh, ring the alarm bell anytime there was even a hint of something happening that they could characterize as pro-Nazi, uh, if they were really consistent about their principles, wouldn't they be in a, a, a furor at the site of this rally happening on the, in the streets of Manhattan where the a, a pro-Nazi uh, battalion is being extolled in this fashion? And so uh, with that innocent question in mind, I went and uh, asked... The uh, probably the, the two groups who I would uh, identify as most responsible for fomenting that kind of panic uh, around the supposed surge in Nazi sentiment in the U.S. And during the Trump years, those groups would be the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, and the uh, S- Southern Poverty Law Center. And so I simply uh, innocuously asked them, are they going to issue any kind of statement related to this apparent pro-Nazi rally that just happened in New York. I mean, if they were really so dead set in the very recent past on ensuring that everyone was hyper-conscious of this Nazi threat or the the threat that pro-Nazi sympathizers were running rampant in the streets, you think that they would be all all over this, right? I mean, we, uh, in in their wheelhouse within two seconds to issue a furious denunciatory statement. And uh, sure enough, (laughs) you could probably guess that uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center, you know, they were saying, oh, yeah, we'll get back to you. Don't worry, et cetera. And then the days go by and there's no response at all. And the, act- and the Anti-Defamation League actually told me that they are not going to be putting out any kind of statement. They have nothing to say on the subject. Now, what does that tell you? Well, I mean, I could have predicted those responses, but it shows that obviously the issue when they were in the heights of this frenzy during 2016 to 2020, it was never strictly about Nazism per se, right? It was always Nazism as, as insofar as they could connect it to prevailing political themes happening elsewhere in society. And now that we have a shift in the political climate where uh, this apparent example of Nazi uh, sentiment being expressed in the U.S. would run counter to the dominant narrative about how everyone must stand with Ukraine, um, and that this is a fight for freedom and democracy and all that is good and all that is just, they have nothing to say. Um, so that, I thought, was an interesting kind of reflection of the arbitrariness of a lot of these uh, political trends and the certain like the panics that are stoked under certain political circumstances. So uh, that will be out uh, in article form shortly, so... Take a look at Substack soon uh, for more detail. And, uh, yeah, um, if anybody else has, uh, has a thought, uh, please jump onto the stage. Uh, if not, 
also wanted to just mention something that I posted uh, earlier today uh, on, on Twitter. And uh, you can go to my feed and see that if you, if you missed it. But it was basically a uh, – I mean, this is sort of a nightmarish co- duo. But it was uh, Bill Crystal on his podcast in conversation with Frederick uh, Kagan. Um, and uh, if you're not familiar, and this, uh, it's funny because in the mid-2000s, I kind of became engrossed in foreign policy issues partly because – I was a freshman in college. I started studying the kind of intellectual, quote-unquote, underpinnings of the Iraq War, you know, the neoconservative movement. People probably have heard of the pro- uh, Project for a New American Century and that sort of thing. Um, so this was back when the war was raging, and uh, this was sort of one of my subjects of interest. And one of the, uh, the, the, kind of the, the family dynasty that was maybe most significant, most uh, integral, in uh, setting the stage in this kind of quasi-intellectual way for the invasion of Iraq was the Kagan dynasty. So uh, Robert Kagan and uh, Fred Kagan are the two uh, brothers, and um, they are highly influential at all manner of D.C. think tanks even still today. And you know they were who the, the Bush administration relied on for uh, counsel, uh, the, you know, their father was also involved in the neoconservative movement, Donald, who uh, died relatively recently, actually. But it was like, you know, as a family dynasty, kind of revolved around these kind of pro-war uh, institutions in D.C. and that had been integrated into kind of, the, I guess we'd call it the intellectual apparatus that undergirded the Bush administration's uh, war effort in Iraq. And uh, Frederick Kagan and his uh, wife actually uh, founded the this think tank called the Institute for the Study of War in 2007 expressly to furnish the Bush administration with a strategy for victory in Iraq. So that was, at the time, uh, revolving around this so-called surge strat- uh, policy, where you know the U.S. was sending in going to send in more troops to Iraq to beat down the insurgents, and uh, the Kagans were again integral in kind of formulating the uh, at least apparent policy reasoning for that action. Um, and uh, so then today we've gone through a sort of metamorphosis with these neocons. And when I, when I say neocons, I'm actually referring to a relatively small group of people. Like sometimes the term can be uh, overbroad in its application, but there actually is a cadre of bona fide neocons that uh, had uh, – encircled the Bush administration, you know, like Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl, that sort of person. And uh, Frederick uh, Kagan and uh, Robert Kagan were kind of in that very circle. Um, but uh, th- that group has obviously undergone a metamorphosis over the years where now they tend to be more affiliated with the Democratic Party. I mean, Bill Crystal is one kind of paramount example of this because he's a very public pundit and figure. And so his antipathy toward Trump is well documented and his kind of ingratiation with uh, the Democratic Party is, is well understood. But there are other actors that have gone undergone a similar trajectory. It doesn't mean that the Republican Party is by any means free of neoconservative influence. Um, but the kind of uh, really key figures who were behind the Iraq effort um, have more or less gravitated toward the Democratic uh, Party. And um, 
so, you know, there was a, you know, Bill Crystal obviously has the obligatory podcast now. And he did this uh, long interview with Frederick uh, Kagan about the state of the war in Ukraine and the U.S. policy response. And obviously Kagan, you know, as, as usual, is very intimately involved in the details of this response, in part because of his dealings with this think tank that his wife nominally runs, which, by the way, is constantly cited in the media as this neutral source on sort of military tactical updates in Ukraine, um, uh, as though it's just this uh, impartial uh, think tank with no investment one way or another in the outcome, uh, which, of course, it is, if, in which you would learn if you only looked at the people who run it and the board of directors, which, of course, includes Bill Crystal and David Petraeus and so on and so forth, uh, you know, the regular cast of characters who you'd expect. Um, but uh, basically, uh, and you should go watch this clip if you haven't seen it, but there was sort of a climax of this uh, friendly discussion that Crystal and Kagan had on the podcast where uh, Kagan says that he believes that the world is at a bifurcation point and that the you know, future trajectory of geopolitical events are going to be dependent on the outcome in Ukraine, which is why it's so important in Kagan's estimation that a total military, quote, defeat be inflicted on Russia. So this gets back to the point that I was making earlier. I mean, was Seth Moulton just exaggerating, or is he getting, quote, ahead of his skis when he makes that blunt statement about the U.S. being fundamentally at war with Russia? Well, no, not apparently. If you look at the people who are kind of legitimizing the Biden administration's policy, um, they view that as the imperative to inflict a defeat on Russia militarily such that it's weakened. That's what Lloyd Austin said, the Secretary of Defense. Um, but my, of course I wasn't surprised when I heard Kagan articulate that. That's what I would have expected. But I did think it was worth noting that the kind of logic put forward by Kagan and the way he articulated his resolve that the U.S. see to it that Russia is defeated – it could have been articulated in exactly that way by virtually anybody across the political spectrum these days. You could have a Democrat could have said that in exactly the same words, and so could it have a Republican. You could have heard a left wing person or a right wing person or anybody in between, basically making the exact same point that Kagan did. And here's Kagan, this kind of preeminent neocon luminary, who actually is, you know, a bonafide neocon family dynast, um, having basically his logic. Totally, so totally mainstream across the political spectrum that you don't even really recognize it as neocon in nature, right? It could have been articulated in that, that way by somebody who identifies more as you know, a liberal interventionist or a liberal humanitarian um, or even you know, a progressive or a right-wing nationalist, conservative, whoever. They all would have been more or less exactly verbatim echoing what Kagan said there. And I think that kind of goes to the power of the neoconservative uh, clack. I mean, they're a tiny group of people, really, um, which is why, you know, when you see political dynamics ebb and flow, they have, they can be at times rejected as evidenced by Trump, you know, winning the 2016 nomination for the Republican party, notwithstanding that he was, uh, at least at the time purported to be an ardent foe of theirs. Um, but, you know, fast forward and basically the neoconservative view as articulated by Kagan is uh, basically just the generic view amongst the entire political class. Um, and I think that's telling as to the kind of enduring viability of 
neoconservative ideology, even though at least on the surface, a lot of people, including Republicans and conservatives, will say that they loathe the neocons and they don't want anything to do with them anymore and that they've been rejected by the party coalition when really – you know, uh, what happens is that these neoconservative ideals or principles kind of insinuate themselves into other ideological structures or ideological worldviews and in that way are able to persist. Um, so uh, I would recommend taking a look at that uh, clip if you haven't seen it. Um, uh, all right. Uh, let's go to uh, Sean. Hello, Sean. In your work for a number of years now pretty cool that I can have a conversation with you on the background. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, good. We can... I agree. It's a good... It's a nice innovation. So, I mean, we're... I think some people kind of, like, uh, bring an unnecessary amount of uh, of nuance into this discussion because, um, I mean, we're, we're seeing, like, basically the the US dollar being unseated as the world currency and that's pretty much i mean that in our massive military how we've controlled the world now for decades and that's unraveling before our eyes and we've seen that there's no amount of there's no limit to the amount of bodies that these people will bury to protect their wealth and power and you know we're, we're going to a point where, you know, China has kind of recovered from, from uh, their civil war in World War II. Russia is, is starting to, you know, rebound from the collapse of the Soviet Union. And we're heading towards a world where it's, it's going to be multipolar. And that's, you know, that's going to stop these guys from, from cashing as big a checks as they want. And, the house of cards is, is collapsing. And if we don't have like a, like a serious, coherent, organized anti-war movement, like this is world war three. It's, it's really that simple. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm not sure what nuance you're exactly talking about that maybe we're too focused on. Um, if you're, if you mean that, you know, we need to just have a more kind of black and white, interpretation of events as they as they're unfolding meaning it's either world war three or not then uh yeah i mean i think that's probably worth doing although or that framing can be useful although i've found in my discussions with people online and elsewhere if you use the term world war three and then you know world war three doesn't break out the following week or month then that's cited as evidence that you are excessively alarmist, right? Or that you are, you know, the boy who cried wolf, or that even that you want in a subconscious way to instigate World War III because then that would validate your analysis. Um, and, you know, maybe some of those people just can't be reasoned with at all and they just support this policy. That's underway, notwithstanding the escalatory spiral, and uh, they want to shunt aside any concerns about what it could eventuate in. Uh, but I do find that to be a um, something of a roadblock in in getting through to uh, people. On the other hand, maybe there's the jarring nature of World War Three as a concept 
has kind of shaken certain people out of their complacency and got them more interested in what the U.S. is doing here. Um, but you know, at the same, but I kind of, I kind of go back to this uh, wordplay that's often done about kind of obfuscating the real nature of the policy, where you know, the it kind of speaks to one of these kind of uh, obstacles to articulating clearly what the risk is. Um, you know, there was this uh, event yesterday uh, held by the Financial Times in Washington, D.C. I think they call it they're in a weekend festival or something. And um, this uh, journalist, Edward Lewis, who I've occasionally had attack me, not, not surprisingly. Now, he conducted these friendly interviews with a variety of people, including um, the CIA director, William Burns, and then Henry Kissinger, believe it or not, uh, who's uh, almost 99 years old. Uh, and although I have a longstanding, uh, I guess you would could say, antipathy for Henry Kissinger, I do have to acknowledge that on the subject of Russia and Ukraine, um, he is much more, I would say, even in his extremely old age, more sensible and uh, measured than a lot of people who are currently in power. So uh, it almost makes one one long for Kissinger to be in charge. Uh, but but when <laughs> Burns was up, the CIA director, he was asked about these leaks, right? And uh, he was just uh, basically said unchallenged. So Edward Luce, the Financial Times journalist, didn't challenge him on this point at all because why would he? It probably would never even occur to him to do so. But Ed, uh, William Burns said that the what was irresponsible and uh, reckless and you know lamentable was that the leaks ever happened at all. He didn't have any problem with the policy. Um, so I think I think that point actually should be emphasized more that. You know, wh- why is it that so many people, you know, are fundamentally fine with the policy, which they can see with their eyes every day, or every, at least every week, is causing the warfare to escalate? Um, why is it that they're fine with that? But if they have any quibble, it's that the public is being kind of incrementally told about in bits and pieces about how the policy is functioning. I think that's a point that could actually maybe penetrate somewhat into the wider consciousness. But in terms of actually creating some kind of broader anti-war movement, I mean, your guess is as good as mine as to how that would actually work because automatically you'd get maligned as a pro-Russian or that you want you favor genocide against Ukraine or that you're maybe in the pay of Putin or all these kind of standard attacks, which, you know, maybe to you and me, definitely to me, don't have an impact because I've been fielding those kinds of attacks now for like six years, beginning with the onset of Russiagate. But for a lot of people... Um, and you know, particularly the progressive institutional movement or other aspects of you know political society, those attacks really do string, sting and could have reputational consequences and can maybe compromise their ability to ascend through the ranks through whatever their professional orbit is, or they could be ostracized by their peers and socially maligned and, and so on. So um, it's a huge barrier um, to organizing anything that would be formidable enough to make uh, any kind of conceivable impact. And I'm not sure how to, to, uh, to uh, transcend that barrier. You know, it's funny you should say that because I actually have been uh, toying with this ambitious idea and I'm inspired by video games and 
Oh, God, you're going to get me on a it's video game tangent now because uh, <laughs> after 10 years, sorry to interrupt, but after 10 years, I hadn't, had, I hadn't played any video games, really. I hadn't had a console because I, I knew that if I had one, especially one of these uh, you know, latest generation consoles, I would waste way too much time playing games. And sure enough, that's been the case because you know, one thing led to another. I ended up getting a PS5 and a Nintendo Switch. So after I got back from my uh, European tour uh, this week, I... I Probably spent a little bit much too much time playing the uh, God of War game on PlayStation Five, but it was worth it. The thing about video games is it's such a it's such a massive industry. People spend such a, a crazy amount of time, and especially now more than ever, money on playing these video games. And to me, it's because it's. It's an opportunity to escape into a world in which you have some level of control over the outcomes. And I think that now that we have the technology, the Internet is ubiquitous now. I mean, we can, we can poll and vote with millions of people instantly. And I think that we can create a very powerful political organization by reimagining the way that we speak to people and that we, we organize. Because if we had an organization that we structured like some of these games where you can, you can give people agency and acknowledgement by giving them rank for organizing events, for attending protests for... Right, so gamify gamify anti-war organizing. (laughs) Well, not just anti-war, though. I mean, my my theory is you could create a 21st century political party that could could grow much faster than a a traditional political party. Um, And it all goes... it, It all goes back to, like, that little psychological need that all of us have right at the top of the pyramid, right? Of self-actualization. I think a lot of the, the, the reason why we don't have high voter turnout in elections is because people rightly understand that it doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter who they vote for. They're, they feel powerless within the, the political institutions that exist. Yeah, you know, one, one, one thing that, you know, I, and I, I became much more intimately familiar with this when I would be covering the uh, presidential primaries in both parties, actually. But uh, there's a particular kind of valence of it in the Democratic Party where um, often in local government kind of charters or uh, stru- structures that kind of govern elections – the primacy of both the Republican and Democratic Party will come be, be baked into the actual legal code, and uh, this is the case at multiple levels of government, you know, on a municipal level, county level, uh, even uh, state level. Um, so, when I hear people float ideas about a new political party, um, you know, there's a reason why <laughs> third parties are constantly blocked from taking part in debates every cycle, and are basically. Uh, uh, cast off as loony distractions. Uh, it's not just because their their ideas are necessarily unpopular. Often they are popular, um, but there's just this uh, hegemony that the uh, the two parties have have constructed over the course of decades 
uh, that is uh, rooted in how deeply embedded they are within these structures at all levels of government in the U.S. So it's not like in uh, France or something, right, where it's much more centralized government. And so you do have a situation where this, these past two uh, elections, 2017 and 2022, basically the two main parties, the Socialist Party and the center-right uh, party, the, the, what you might have previously called the establishment parties, they've been almost ab- totally obliterated. It's the equivalent of the Democratic Party and Republican Party being obliterated in the U.S. You know, at a presidential level. Um, I, I think that strikes me as far less likely to ever conceivably happen in the U.S., just given the uh, diffusion of uh, – electoral kind of uh, electoral governance throughout uh, many, many different local and state and levels and so forth. Um, but at the same time, you know, in, in principle, I'm not, I'm not averse to it. It's just uh, on a practical level, nobody's really explained how, uh, how, how it could work. I'm not saying that I would put that obligation onto you. I mean, you, you don't have to use a political party solely for the purpose of electoralism. I mean, like I said, you know, you, you could get points for uh, organizing mutual aid efforts and recognition, amplified tweets, or say, Michael Tracy is your favorite uh, media personality, and, you know, you've worked really hard, and you've achieved a rank in this political organization. Maybe you get to go on a, a you know, 15, 20-minute segment with, with Michael Tracy and I'm telling you, man. Which would be the you know the, the greatest prize anybody could ever achieve, sure. <laughs> but if you can get people invested, if you can get people to build an identity around a new political party, all of those rules and roadblocks, they exist. But if you can mobilize independent voters and non-voters, I mean – there's a lot that that can overcome because the reality is if you can mobilize enough people, all of that stuff can become relatively meaningless because you can also use that organization to put pressure on existing parties. And this is just a, basically just a new method of organizing people. You don't. I, yeah, you know, um, at least um, if, if we're talking more about the short term, right? And this relates to the Ukraine situation. You know, I think it harkens back to the uh, America First Committee prior to which existed prior to the U.S. involvement in World War II, or at least the formal involvement. And I think um, the histo- the depiction historically of the America First Committee is highly negative, right? Um, and especially with Trump appropriating that slogan for his 2016 campaign and, and onwards, it now is associated more in like this, the popular conception to the extent that people are even aware that this happened in the this this organization existed in the 40s. Uh, you know, it's it's thought of as a you know a bastion of like reactionary uh, sentiments and uh, Hitler appeasers and. Uh, anti-Semitism and everything ugly under the sun that you could possibly hurl at that uh, group. But when you stu- you study it, yeah, there were reactionary components to it. Uh, but it was a pretty, you know, broad-based coalition that included uh, people from across the spectrum. You know, there were uh, re- you know religious leaders who weren't just hardcore 
right wing. Um, it was uh, pretty, uh, again, a, a ideologically diverse organization, and you definitely would need something akin to that today, although the problem is, as I sort of mentioned earlier, inevitably what would happen is that you know, however diverse it is, it would get um, uh, immediately targeted as this uh, kind of uh, sewer of all the worst tendencies in the country, and you know, be, uh, you know, if there was one guy with a MAGA hat who maybe, you know, tweeted something positive about January 6th, that would be used to tarnish the entire organization. And uh, yeah, maybe, maybe that could be surmounted and maybe it would be worth doing regardless of such attacks. But I do think it shouldn't be underestimated how much of a disincentive the specter of those attacks would be for people who might otherwise be uh, inclined to join. Um, but well, yeah, me, that, said, that, that all said, I'm not really an, a, a political organizer or activist. However, I'm you know, obviously uh, open to the prospect of something like this coming into being you know when the when the war was first launched and uh when the invasion first started in february i did something uncharacteristic of me which is i put out a call for anybody who had an idea of some sort of organizing that could be done uh, on an anti-war level uh to uh you know, get in touch with me and i got a couple people giving me sort of the beginnings of certain thoughts they had but nothing uh robust enough to form a basis to organize anything uh, substantial yet well, let me just say this Nobody understands psychology more intimately than marketers and the military and the CIA. And they have both made great utility of, of this idea. And I think that it's something, it's, it's a weapon that we can use against them in a way that's not insidious and can actually empower people. And uh, I just want to say that my name is Spruce Wayne 10 on Twitter, like the tree spruce. And if you're interested in that stuff, um, anyone listening or any, anyone like that, you want to have a conversation about it. I'd love to talk to you. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued by your, uh, at least initial thoughts. And maybe we can get Elon Musk on board and he can, uh, as part of his Twitter growth strategy, he can implement some of your ideas. Um, all right. Thanks, Sean. Let's go to uh, thanks, Nasser. Hello again. Nasser, you are up if you're there. You have to unmute. All right. Well, uh, Nasser might be absent, which is unfortunate because I always enjoy his uh, contributions. Nasser, if you want to... Uh, Come back. Feel free to do so. And let's go to uh, Lance. I don't even know what the heck the specific subtopic is. I know the general one. If you want to put me back in. Um, sorry, you're, uh, can't hear you so well. I don't know if it's something with your connection. Oh, can you hear me now? Uh, yeah, I think so. All right, still can't hear you, unfortunately. I hope it's not my connections problem. Um, but uh, but uh, Lance, come back onto yeah, the stage World War if you III, want. Yeah, World War Three. We're headed for nuke. You know, it, what's that now? Sorry, oh, sorry, Lance. I, uh, I I I ejected you from the stage, even though you could hear. So I could hear you now. So come back onto the stage, uh, Andrew. You are up. 
Hi. Um, so I just wanted to ask, considering that the United States hasn't had an actual congressional declaration of war since, I don't know, decades, long before I was born. World War II. That was, um, the, last, that was the last formal declaration on, uh, on Germany and Japan. Right. Um, basically, <clears throat> I'm trying to consider whether or not there's a force in America that wants to actually do more. Um, like a considerable force in government and in political economy that wants to do more than just make money off of Ukraine and, you know, send replacement vehicles and weapons to NATO members so that they can send their weapons to Ukraine and make a big profit train and, you know, stick their thumb in Russia's eye. Um, these people that want to, that, that say that we're in a state of war with Russia, when they say this, it, it seems to me that the logical conclusion then has to be more than just uh, military intelligence and arming Ukraine. Like it's going to eventually have to become, if we're at war with Russia, which is what these people apparently believe, then how can it not develop into some kind of direct conflict? It's that's the thing I'm really failing to understand because my base intuition is that there are the powers that be, if you will, mostly just, want to maintain kind of like the Biden status quo right now that they think they can get away with this kind of like PR campaign around Zelensky. And as I said, making money off of it and uh, punishing Russia and sanctioning them and whether it's working or not, I felt like that was the plan, but I just don't understand if there, if there is a faction out there that really wants to have an actual war or say that we are at war, how could that, and I'm not saying it's going to be Congress declaring war, because obviously we've had plenty of military, special military actions all throughout the the globe without declaring war through Congress. So it's definitely possible. I just don't know what it would look like. And if these people are serious about a war, then how does it not how does it end it telling Ukrainians where to bomb? You know what I mean? Or, or not at least to escalate through NATO being an yeah. extension of our military. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, uh, with respect to these two kind of very significant leaks that happened to the New York Times this past week, if it's now out in the public record that the U.S. is not merely supplying defensive aid, although obviously it could have been inferred well before this week that it didn't stop at any kind of defensive mission – um, but if now if they're openly bragging in the paper of record that the U.S. is operationally involved in these kind of massive actions to, for example, sink the flagship ship in the Russian naval fleet, then uh, it seems to me that potentially, and this maybe this is slightly cynical of an interpretation, but one of the potential motivations for the leak could be to provide Russia with a basis for uh, justifying more aggressive attacks on uh, American installations in yeah. the in the area, potentially within NATO countries. So U.S. hawks uh, helping Russian hawks get what they want, so that they can get yeah the hawks in both countries basically makes sense. Yeah. Right. I mean, so if, um, you know, the, for example, you know, where I was in southeast Poland, Yeshev, if, if it's now this basically military logistics hub of the U.S. It's becoming Ramstein 2.0 in uh, southeast Poland. 
where uh, the U.S. is basically facilitating, it's not NATO facilitating these weapons shipments so, so people know. Like when, when you see like a, a news tidbit about how Slovakia is sending a certain number of armaments or something, that's all facilitated through the U.S., which is the prime mover in, um, in, uh, in Poland and in other countries. Um, per the laws of war, I mean, Russia probably could put forward a case saying that it's justified to bomb, say, that airport. Uh, where I visited in in Yeshev, Poland, that all these uh, flights of armaments are coming into, and uh, part of that rationale could be that you know it's been reported by the New York Times that major American officials are bragging that uh, they are uh, deeply intertwined with operations such as the sinking of that ship and the killing of generals. Um, so you know that's why I kind of had the initial intuition when I saw those leaks that there are factions within the. Biden administration who maybe do want to drop the pretense and just go uh, uh, balls to the wall, really, and declare something resembling outright war. I think you're right that it probably wouldn't be a formal declaration like it took place um, in World War II, but that hasn't been a hindrance at all for the U.S. to engage in all kinds of military operations. I mean, but uh, could it come down to something like an authorization for use of military force? Uh, possibly, I mean, that's what preceded the wars in Afghanistan in Iraq. Um, I, it, 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 you would think that if there was anybody in Congress with any cachet who wanted to assert its constitutionally prescribed prerogatives at this point to regulate the uh, conduct of warfare, they could use those revelations this week about the intelligence sharing operation to exert more uh, oversight on the, the Biden administration's ability to wage unilateral uh, warfare in such a manner that gives one the strong impression that we're at direct war with uh, with Russia. But um, unfortunately, uh, most people in Congress in both parties, with aside from like 10 Republicans in the House, um, they're all about just prov- uh, giving Biden more and more unilateral power to do as he sees fit. So, um, you know, the, I mean, Congress, this is a longstanding trend where Congress has basically just totally abdicated its responsibility uh, to uh, be involved in foreign policy and has basically ceded its powers to the executive. Um, uh, so it probably wouldn't require some kind of formal declaration. It could just be this kind of escalatory spiral that uh, is within the purview of the president. I just don't see how that could actually be in anyone's interest, considering to where it would obviously lead within I mean, who knows how quickly. Um, yeah. I guess uh, one one last thing for you. If you ever get to uh, speak to the head of the uh, department, uh, the Board of Disinformation, uh, Nina Jankowitz, is that her name? Is that correct? Or... <laughs> yeah. Should I sing some show tunes with her? Well, I would like you to ask. <laughs> that would be great. But I'd like you to ask a question. Um, is it disinformation that America is in a war with Russia or not? Because now it seems that there's some disagreement within uh, the power structure about there's basically this tug of war through these leaks. So um, I'm sure she would say that we're not. But uh, the, the interesting thing about that is just uh, if we're not in a war with Russia, I mean, a little perspective would be nice if anybody in the world provided intelligence to another military, which then used that intelligence to sink one of our ships. I'm sure we'd be very forgiving. I'm sure we. How is that not an act of war? I mean, 
in what world is that not an act of war? Um, no, I mean, I think... I, I, those I think, two things are paradoxical. No, no I'm sure if Russia uh, provided real-time intelligence to some kind of, I don't know, armed faction in Mexico to sink a uh, major vessel off of San Diego or something, we would just look the other way and not consider that an act of war. Um, I mean, this, this is why, I mean, uh, people talk about how frantic uh, Russian internal propaganda is coming, becoming, and I don't dispute that. I mean, I think they're, the clips that I've seen, and maybe they're selectively promulgated, but I have seen clips where more and more extreme rhetoric is being used by you know, people on state TV and uh, certain politicians basically um, almost uh, criticize, declaring that Putin needs to be more aggressive and kind of, uh, going after the U.S. because we're in a state of war. Um, uh, but you know, part of that is, inf- is informed by the rational, I would say, judgment. Uh, maybe not rational, but uh, defensible and understandable judgment that what the U.S. is engaging in is tantamount to uh, acts of war. Um, and, yeah, in, in terms of the disinformations are, I would, first off, just love her to, to define what disinformation really is. Maybe I should read her books where she's talking about how difficult it is to be a woman online and, you know, for all the harassment you have to deal with and the disinformation. But just uh, providing a, a coherent intelligible definition of disinformation seems to be a too heavy a task for a lot of these disinformation alarmists um, because yeah I mean if it is if, if she would deem it disinformation that we're at war with Russia then I guess uh, Seth Moulton the Democratic congressman I mentioned earlier is guilty of disinformation exactly. uh, I think I think what Seth Moulton is guilty of if anything is being too honest about the nature of U.S policy. Uh, because again, the, the issue that most people seem to have is not with the policy itself, it's with it being forthrightly expressed, with its nature being kind of honestly conveyed to the public because they think that itself is escalatory. They don't think the actual policy actions are escalatory, which is sort of a conundrum that um, maybe people who are a bit more sensible ought to try to puncture. Could I oh, just yeah. one last quick thing? I yeah, yeah, sure. I, I said uh, the last one was the last thing. Yeah, no We're problem. talking about red lines, and Ukraine has red lines, Russia has red lines. And Where are the anti-war protesters' red lines? Left wing, right wing, I don't care. Is there a red line that you think that could be established? Maybe this is where we could go somehow on organizing that. If, if it's crossed militarily, if there's some kind of red line uh, in, for the anti-war movement where you know direct engagement between NATO and Russia or some kind of red line. Is there any kind of red line do you think we could make clear between like the entire anti-war, whoever's left interested movement and just say like, we need to act if this happens, we just have to do something. Well, you know, obviously it's, it's speculation. I do think that, you know, um, if there was just an overt deployment of quote unquote troops on the ground that entailed U.S. soldiers engaging in outright combat against Russian forces, that would obviously be impossible to avoid if you at least are nominally against this uh, against the U.S. You know, uh, intensifying its war efforts. Um, the, I guess the problem is that if if it were ever get to that point. It's too late. It would probably have to, yeah, it's too late. I mean, the momentum is already uh, so, so we're really stuck here. I mean, the the yeah, I think I think so. I mean, you know, I, one of the reasons, one of the things I tried to do since this started it is sort of document these incremental escalate, escalatory actions that you know, every week there's a new one, uh, a new kind of uh, seemingly 
you know, watershed uh, action. You know, this past week it was these revelations of the operational uh, involvement of U.S. intel in these, uh, you know, major strikes on Russian assets. Um, but, you know, I think um, the ball is already really rolling. I mean, and if there were to be troops deployed on the ground in a more kind of tangible, unmistakable fashion, it would probably be in response to something that's deemed to be a Russian provocation, right, or a Russian attack. Like, let's say they strike a supply line or something, and then the U.S. must respond. You know, so I think, um, uh, you know, uh, if, it, if it gets to that point, it's probably, you know, beyond where anybody can really control. You know, actually, Henry Kissinger yesterday, um, we have to say, despite almost turning 99, is still somewhat lucid uh, and... Um, clear in his speaking uh, you know, <laughs> i'm not obviously endorsing henry kissinger but you know maybe he i think he's probably taking a peter teal true uh longevity serum or something um somewhat worrying yeah <laughs> and um oh, he was saying and he he always talks kind of obliquely because he doesn't uh want to antagonize he wants to like basically be even at his this age be in the good graces of anybody uh within the establishment who might call on him for counsel um so uh, it, it was sort of vague what he was getting at, but if you read between the lines, he was saying that you know he's he always had a strong interest academically in studying the uh, beginnings of World War One and how um, none of the belligerents in World War One. This is sort of the way he summarized it: consciously wanted war, right? But the kind of tech, technology. Uh, the advances in technology at that time got ahead of them, so that even their desire not to spark the war couldn't be uh, couldn't constrain the actual launching of the war. You know, something to that effect. And he seemed to be likening that to the current situation. Although, again, it was sort of hazy uh, what he was getting at in specifics because of this sort of manner in which he communicates. But I think there is something to that. I mean, there are probably are factions within the Biden administration who genuinely don't want outright hot war with Russia, um, maybe even including Biden himself, although it's hard to really say anymore because, I mean, how much can you how, – how, for how long can you maintain that pretense if all you're doing is escalating and if you're constantly undermining any kind of negotiated settlement? Um, uh, but may, maybe deep down, uh, Biden doesn't want that, but it almost doesn't matter because uh, – the, again, the ball is in motion. Yeah, the um, machine is in moving. Yeah. It's just yeah, a machine. Like, yeah. All right. Thanks, well, Andrew. Thank you for your time, uh, and uh, good luck staying sane. Yeah. Well, um, I, uh, I I let some of my uh, frustrations release when I was hacking uh, different uh, dark elves to death with a battle axe in, in God of War, so hopefully that was enough to let off some steam. All right, uh, Nasser, you are, you are up if you're able to unmute this time. Yes. Hey, Michael. How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Good, good, good. Thank you. So as far as the escalation is concerned, my question is that what would happen once like the reality sits in and uh, even the mainstream media acknowledges that, you know, the Ukrainian forces uh, are not in good, sh- not in good shape and, and Russia will achieve its objective, at least in the eastern side, east and south of Ukraine. So what will happen? What will these political leaders do? Like, will they say, okay, now we have to send, like, uh, 
big, big guns, you know? Yeah. Well, they're already doing that, big right? Missiles, I mean, anti-ballistic missiles, you know, or ballistic missiles. What would they do then? I mean, I mean, they have, I mean, they send to Ukraine as much as they could. I mean, they send javelins, they send howitzers, and they, they send all kinds of weapons up until now, as much as they could, I mean. But what will be like the next once the reality seeps in and everybody, like, be, everybody knows that, okay, now the war in eastern Ukraine is kind of like uh, one-sided because, I mean, Russia is going to achieve the goals and its goals and objectives. And uh, so what will be the reaction then? Well, I mean, it could be a rude awakening, right? Because so much of what we've been told from the outset of this invasion is that Ukrainian uh, fighters have massively overperformed expectations. Now, that's just sort of a cliche. Maybe they have achieved some notable um, victories in that early phase of, of the war, although it's hard to know what is even being referred to when people say that expectations had been X and the outcome is Z. Um, because, you know, who decreed what these expectations were? It's sort of just like this abstract concept that gets appropriated to push whatever narrative is most uh, felicitous for the people in power. Um, uh, and, you know, they, there's always this kind of pretension that, you know, pundits uh, in the U.S. have like, access to Putin's uh, playbook. Right, that's the word they use often, and they know that he was totally, you know, uh, bewildered by the failures of the Russian military in that early uh, stage. And again, that probably is true to some extent, but the certainty with which, and I mentioned this with uh, Richard Hanania in the column that we had recently, but the certainty with which those uh, pronunciations, uh, pronouncements are made, always strikes me as somewhat uh, misplaced and not really tethered to any kind of factual. Uh, basis in terms of what will happen if you know Russia continues to advance. I mean, well, n- number one, they have basically taken control of Mariupol. I mean, I don't know why that doesn't get depicted. If we're talking just about raw kind of calculations in terms of who's up and who's down in the war, it would seem that Russia essentially, you know, what through whatever war of attrition it took, nonetheless, they have se- they have seized control of one of their apparently main targets in uh, Mariupol and of. Uh, pretty much, uh, you know, seized you know, or conquered that that city, which had been something that you know had been a, an ambition since 2014, apparently. Uh, but you know, you'll notice that that doesn't get portrayed as like Russia having been victorious, right? Um, and there's also a contradiction that is seldom remarked upon between these constant demands for more and more weaponry and higher and higher grade weaponry and Biden going out to Congress and saying we need a $33 billion appropriated for Ukraine and this idea that, the, that Ukraine has uh, prevailed or that their, uh, their, their battlefield skill is so uh, formidable because you know, if that were the case, why, why is it that we have to keep escalating on their behalf? Um, well, maybe they're only prevailing because of the U.S. support. You know, uh, I, I mentioned this when those New York Times leaks came out, but, you know, part of the folklore around this war has been that, you know, these scrappy, resourceful Ukrainians have, um, against all odds, achieved major uh, victories and uh, have, uh, you know, done things like kill 
Russian generals or even sink the warship. And then it turns out, of course, you know, thanks to these leaks, we now know that really they were more or less kind of American-guided operations. Now, I'm sure people could maybe contest whether, you know, the U.S. provision of that intelligence was causal in allowing, you know, some Ukraine forces to, for example, sink the warship. But, yeah, you know, one, one thing that was communicated in the New York Times story is that the American intelligence sharing operation was, quote, crucial in uh, facilitating that, that action. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think, uh, you know, there's a – basically what's been imparted by a lot of people in power in the U.S. and the U, also the U.K., is that uh, never can one inch of territory be allowed to be ceded to Russia. Um, so if any negotiated settlement at some point in the future involves Russia, you know, um, laying claim to maybe parts of the southern or eastern Ukraine, that, that apparently is never going to be acceptable to the U.S. or the U.K. And so uh, therefore there uh, might they might veto any negotiated resolution um so how are they going to react to this i don't know i mean it seems like the logical endpoint of all this is just more it's just outright undarnished war i don't see what else this can culminate in given the current trajectory that we're on but maybe people have who are smarter than me can provide an alternate interpretation i think i yeah. I agree with you. Even like based on like uh, experts like Jack Bird or Douglas Douglas McGregor and people like him, they say that okay. I mean, we just don't know. No, nobody knows. You know what are like uh, uh, Russia's objective. But if we see it, you know, as as far as they say, they say okay, east east. East of the river, okay, the Dnieper River, that's the goal. And Russia will achieve, you know, its objective east, 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 east of the river, you know, the Dnieper River. So based on that, even if, like, I mean, it looks like, uh, looks like Russia is going to achieve that goal. So, and, and then, you know, and then what would be next above escalation? I mean, what, what will uh, the West do to kind of, like, uh, escalate more? You know the situation. So for me, I don't know because now they did everything they could. I mean, they share intelligence, they send uh, a lot of weapons and everything they do. But I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't know. There might be. I mean, more that they can, but I don't know what will they do. So, so that that's always uh, a puzzle for me. And uh, yeah, so. I don't know. I mean, this is like, uh, yeah, it's it's, it's going to be bad in my opinion. I mean, whatever. The, I mean, it, it already is bad. Um, um, so it's going to like, I mean, all they can actually, they were just going to change the western part of Ukraine into a shooting range, you know? It's going to be like... Yeah, you know, I, I uh, I've learned not to... Expe- uh, speculate too freely about uh, future events. I think as of today, May 8th, what we can conclude is that there is this apparatus that is firmly in motion um, toward greater and greater escalation and you know, nobody seems to have a clear idea of what the ultimate uh, 
objective is and if if ever people in the decision making apparatus are too forthright about what their preferred objective is meaning open warfare against Russia to change the regime they get sort of chastised as being too honest um, so I don't know I guess we'll just have to see all right. Uh, thanks, Nasser, and thanks everybody. And Thank you. Uh, we'll uh, we'll do it again soon. Bye bye.